Welcome to Wonderland is proud to support the 2023 Soda City Comic Con. August 19th and 20th, join thousands of fans of fantasy, comics, science fiction, anime, classic games, pinball, and much, much more as they descend upon the Columbia Metropolitan Convention Center. One day and two day tickets are now available for your chance to meet Sean Astin. As well, you can meet actor 90s heartthrob Vanessa Angel. Plus, you'll meet voice actors from your favorite anime series like Attack on Titan, Demon Slayer, One Piece, and many more. Visit SodaCityComicCon.com for tickets and more information. The 2023 Soda City Comic Con is a premier pop culture experience in South Carolina. Get your tickets now. Visit SodaCityComicCon.com for details. Welcome to Wonderland, the podcast where I go down the rabbit hole to research things you may be curious about. My name is Ami, and I'll be your guide on this trip to Wonderland. Hi guys, and thank you so much for joining me on this very special crossover podcast event. I am here with the host from another podcast that is part of Barrett Gruber Entertainment and Media and the GOT Podcast Network, my papa pod, if you will, the All About Nothing podcast. Joining me today are Trent Clark, Zach King, and Barrett Gruber. Hi. What's going on? <laughs> you know who we are. It's I our think- pleasure to be in Wonderland. <laughs> this show is a little different today because it's part Welcome to Wonderland and part the All About Nothing. For them, this is more or less a live show, and they'll be posting on Monday, as usual, as an All About Nothing episode. For me, I'll go home and do some editing. <laughs> um, and then the Welcome to Wonderland version will also be posted on Monday, May 15th, which, for those of you keeping up with me, is the one-year anniversary of the first episode of Welcome to Wonderland. Hey. Uh, for my <laughs> listeners, you're familiar with my format, but since All About Nothing listeners may not be, this is for them. Basically, what I do is I get a topic that I or my listeners are curious about, and I dig in. I let myself go down rabbit holes and potentially change directions a lot of times while I'm researching whatever the topic may be. I then ask people around me questions related to that topic. Zach and Barrett are regular participants. Uh, When I edit Welcome to Wonderland together, I splice in the answers from people I've interviewed with the research I've done. Typically, each of my episodes is only about 20 or 25 minutes, and this one we're going to be a little bit longer, uh, since it is technically an all-about-nothing episode also. Mm -hmm. And those guys are (laughs) long-winded. I've done episodes on the history of podcasts, Happy Hour, Halloween, and radio as some examples. All About Nothing is categorized as improv, comedy, politics, that kind of thing. Welcome to Wonderland would be classified as educational or informative and is suitable for all ages. All right, so to start out, I always have to wonder about something. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder. (laughs) I wonder. I wonder. I wonder. I wonder. All right, so for this episode, we tossed around a variety of topics from automobiles to baseball to the NFL, but we decided on a topic that is out of this world. Any thoughts on what that topic might be? Them aliens. Um, yeah, uh, that green stuff. Uh, I, so if I'm going to guess, I'm going to, uh, am I not supposed to know or am I supposed to know? It's fine. Okay, UFOs. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're going to be discussing UFOs and aliens. Mm. But before we can really get into that rabbit hole, we have to start at the top. What is a UFO? It is an unidentified flying object. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Same. yeah so they nailed it uh this is an unidentified flying object a term historically used to describe aircraft that aren't easily identifiable or explained 
Air Force officer Edward Ruppelt, who investigated aerial phenomena in the 1950s, coined the term unidentified flying objects and UFOs. But an interesting fact on this one, the U.S. government uses a different phrase these days to disassociate from science fiction. Any guesses on what term they use? Yeah, that's a UAP. UAP yeah. yeah, unidentified aerial phenomenon. Phenom- Perfect. They use the explore. phrase unidentified aerial phenomenon or UAPs. So if we're going to talk about things that fly, first we're going to go higher and talk about what is flight. Oh, uh, flight is movement through air. Is it, is it anything? Is it can I, I, I guess, yeah, I guess that would be the most, yeah, logical. But I, I guess you would to have it. to actually define it a little bit more to if, you, if you're going to say flight sustained. I sustained. Well, but yeah, but can well, you, chickens can technically fly, but they can't fly long oh, distances. Oh, this my is, mother would is, love to have this argument because yeah, like a turkey chickens, fly, chickens like, can't fly. They jump. jump. Yeah. And then they, which is the same with birds. But if they're birds. flapping their wings, that's their definition of their flight. Then there's but, gotta be a distance equivalent for like, all right, that's sustained. Okay. Flight. I'm gonna give you a prime example. If somebody's a long jumper and he can't jump as long as other people, you're not going to say he can't, he's not a long jumper. He just can't jump as far as other people. He's still a jumper. So he's a long jumper. He's jumping farther than you and me. Now, ostrich, <laughs> ostrich, I've never seen fly, but a chicken, I've technically seen a chicken fly to so get away. Don't fly, they, they do. do. They, they, they flap no. their wings and they get up for a little bit and then they come down. If they don't migrate, they don't fly. Yeah, I, I could go with that. Nah, man. I mean, <laughs> give us the correct answer of flight, please. So flying is the process by which an object moves through an area without touching a planetary surface. This flight takes place within an atmosphere, such as an aviation, or through a vacuum of outer space, as is the case with space flight. Flight is typically achieved in one of three primary ways. By generating aerodynamic lift associated with gliding or propulsive thrust, aerostatically using buoyancy, or by ballistic movement. So aerostatic flight, or buoyant flight, is a method by which the device stays aloft using buoyancy, which gives the aircraft the same overall density as air. So what kinds of things do you think use buoyant flight? A balloon? Yeah. Like a... Like a uh, weather balloon weather or something? Weather balloons. The... Um, yeah, uh, what else? A kite? No, a kite uses lift. Yeah. Um, trying to think of that. I think a balloon. If you're going to talk about the buoyancy, where it's ba- making itself as dense equal to the the air surrounding it, or maybe a helicopter. Yeah, because with a with a hot air balloon, the reason you're heating up the air is to make the air less dense, so that the air around yeah, it. than the air around it. So it, a helicopter actually technically doesn't fly. I mean, I guess to that definition, it does. So but you're it, saying a chicken and a helicopter can't <laughs> fly? Is what you're helicopters, <laughs> helicopters beat the air. But, a, heli- but a helicopter uses lift as well yeah, because yeah. the rotator, the, the the balloons. Yeah, yeah. Aerostats include balloons, mm. both free balloons such as hot air balloons and moored balloons which are tethered, such as the balloons in the Macy's Day Parade, as well as airships like the Goodyear Blimp. The Blimps. So aerodynamic flight comes in many different forms, which can be powered or unpowered. I'm going to borrow directly from Wikipedia on this one because it's very concise. Some things that fly do not generate propulsive thrust through the air. For example, the flying squirrel. This is termed gliding. Some things can exploit rising air to climb as raptors when gliding and man-made sailplane gliders. This is termed Soaring. However, most birds and all powered aircraft need a source of propulsion to climb. This is termed powered flight. Mm-hmm. So can you think of some examples that would be considered aerodynamic flight, either powered or unpowered? Chickens. 
<laughs> no, man. She just basically unpowered. Uh, uh, the the squirrel no glides, way. so he's gliding using his just like a chicken. The chicken jumps up, and he's in the air flapping around. It, he he can't can sustain. flap around for a little bit. A chicken cannot sustain at least flight. three seconds. They don't that, have to sustain flight to fly. All right. So other things that fly: airplanes. Yeah. We, that, I mean, you have bottle rockets, helicopters, helicopters, uh, jets, very small rocks, bullets. <laughs> I said very small rocks. <laughs> yeah, very small rocks. Uh, bullets technically do fly, I guess. No. Sure. Aerodynamic flight. There are countless examples in the animal world, from birds, including chickens, mm. to insects, to bats. In the mechanical world, there are airplanes and helicopters and spacecraft. So finally, that third type we were talking about, ballistic flight. While aerodynamic flight creates lift, ballistic flight includes little to no lift and moves primarily under the action of momentum gravity, and in some cases, thrust. Mm -hmm. Can you think of some examples that would be considered ballistic flight? Yeah, the bottle rocket. The bottle rocket, yeah. Well, yeah. Bottle no, rocket. No, it's not moving under momentum. Yeah. It's, it's given thrust until it's dead, and then, then it becomes ballistic, I would reckon. Because the, the sparks come down first, if, and if then it pushes it up, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Bullets, because it has one... As soon as it's shot, there's no more thrust for it. Right. Um. So that would be like cannonballs would have done the yeah. same thing. A catapults, yeah. that would have done that. Slingshots, slingshots, yeah, slingshots, for sure. a good one. That was the other one. Yeah, yeah. and you got very small rocks. See, <laughs> see, baseballs, baseballs, comes back around. I see what you're doing, Base, brother. Baseballs, footballs. <laughs> Technically, because footballs do fly. Technically, arrows, balls, fireworks, and bullets are all ballistic flight. Spacecraft is also considered ballistic flight which almost gets us to where we're going on this trip to Wonderland. We've talked about what flight is and some of the things that fly, but all of these things are identifiable and explained, so none of these things are UFOs. When do you think the first reported UFO sighting was? Oh, year one. <laughs> nah, I think it was 1940. I don't see. No, dude. No, there's hieroglyphics in, yeah. in Egypt. Uh, but she said reported. Well, I mean, if there's a hieroglyph, I feel like that's reporting. Yeah, that's, the Bhagavad I mean, Gita the, is full it's of the, it. It's easily the 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 least the first newspaper is what you're trying yeah, to say. Yeah, it's it's the least movable newspaper. But uh, we're not going to go down ancient alien territory. But you know, the Mesopotamians and stuff like that, the Anunnaki, they have. They're like, there was something in the sky. I'm going with that. Y'all got it yesterday. Even the Bible. A, oh, a year. Give a year, right. give a year man. Y'all got to give a year. Sixty-one twenty-two. B.C. Uh, 10,000 B.C. The first well-known UFO sighting was oh, in... Oh, well-known. Well oh, that was the caveat. Y'all didn't hear, oh, the, well didn't hear the key word. Then it's 1942, Roswell, New Mexico. I said 1940. Oh, that, that means was, I will win. That was crashed. Hold on, wait, wait. Let her give her The first well-known UFO sighting was in 1947 and is actually what gave rise to the term flying saucer to describe mm. UFOs. Kenneth Arnold, a businessman in Mount Rainier, Washington claimed to see a group of nine high-speed objects while flying his small plane. He estimated their speed was several thousand miles per hour and reported they moved like, quote, saucers skipping on water, which then a newspaper incorrectly reported as objects themselves being saucer-shaped, so flying saucers. In reality, Arnold described the shape of the objects as crescent-shaped. Also in 1947, a rancher named W.W. Mac Brazel came across a 200-yard-long wreckage near an Army airfield in... Roswell, New Mexico. Yes. Roswell, New Mexico. I thought you were wanting a year. Local papers reported what Brazel found was the remains of a flying saucer. 
The U.S. military's official statement was that it was a weather balloon, but only after public information officer Walter Hout issued a press release in which he referred to the found object as a disc. Well, I, I know why he said that, and I know what the explanation for it being that is, but I'm not taking away from Ami's podcast. <laughs> we can actually discuss it, because here I only say, which meant that plenty of citizens were wary that the government was trying to hide something. Uh, so the explanation is they were trying to hide something. So during that time, it was Cold War, all that going on right after World War II, and everyone's testing nuclear weapons. And what they would do is put a microphone on the weather balloon and put it up in the thin atmosphere, and you could detect n- nuclear detonation because it's such a thin atmosphere you would detect the waves with a microphone on it and when it crashed they didn't want anybody much less russians finding out that oh are they putting microphones up there to detect what are they doing that for they may have done that but that's not what that was the public continued to be wary and the conspiracy grew in 1950 when dummies with skin made of latex and bones made of aluminum that reportedly looked like aliens fell from the sky also in new mexico The military quickly retrieved these dummies and declared that they were dummy drops to test for new ways for pilots to survive falls. Oh. Fast forward 50 years later, and the government's official story regarding the Roswell wreckage is that it was part of Project Mogul, Mm. a top-secret atomic espionage project. But despite the government's consistent stance that they were not UFOs, they were at least keeping tabs on these sightings. Officially called Project Sign, the U.S. Air Force began investigating reports of UFOs in 1948. Their primary concern was that with Cold War attention mounting, that these sightings were likely sophisticated Soviet aircraft. But some researchers suggested they could be from other worlds. The so-called extraterrestrial hypothesis, ETH. Project Sign was replaced by Project Grudge in 1949, and in 1952, Project Grudge was replaced by Project Blue Book, the longest-lived official inquiries into UFOs. This project was headquartered in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, and closed in 1969. The National Archives offers no information on sightings after that date, but the entire Project Blue Book has been declassified, and the records are available for examination in the National Archives. So let's talk numbers. How many UFO sightings do you think have been reported? In the last what? You mean like total? Since 1942? Millions. Yeah, I gotta. I gotta assume there's there's got to be. I'll go with hundreds of thousands. I'm going with thirty two thousand. Very specific. Yeah. <laughs> so in the twenty two years that Project Blue Book was in play, there were twelve thousand six hundred and eighteen sightings reported to the project. That's roughly one and a half sightings a day for twenty two years. But of those twelve thousand six hundred and eighteen reports, the government has debunked or explained all except for seven hundred and one, which to this day remain unidentified. So there was a period of time where the government wasn't collecting official reports of UFOs or UAP sightings, but on November 26, 2021, the Airborne Object Identification Management Synchronization Group was established to synchronize efforts across the Department of Defense and other federal departments and agencies to detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest in special use airspace. This effort was renamed with an expanded scope on July 15, 2022 to the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, the AARO. Arrow. Initially, National Intelligence reported 144 sightings in a 2021 report, but just earlier this year, that number was 510, Mm. due in part to some new reports and in part to some older ones that were discovered in files. An office within the Department of Defense has determined that about half of these additional 366 sightings display unremarkable characteristics. Of the additional sightings, 26 have been initially characterized as drones, 163 as balloon-like objects, 6 as aerial clutter, which leaves 171 unexplained, some of which exhibited, quote, 
unusual flight characteristics or performance and require further analysis. But these sightings certainly aren't all of them. And if you look closely enough, there are reports of what amounts to unidentified flying objects going back to antiquity. If you've listened to my podcast before, you know that Pliny the Elder and his writings come up a lot. Believe it or not, UFOs are strangely not an exception. In 76 BC, Pliny the Elder reported in chapter 25 of his The Natural History, a chapter called Ominous Appearance in the Heavens that was seen only once. We have an account of a spark falling from a star and increasing as it approached the earth until it became the size of the moon, shining as through a cloud. It afterwards returned into the heavens and was converted into Olympus. This occurred in the consulship of Count Octavius and Sirius Bonius. It was seen by Salanus, the proconsul, and his attendants. It would be difficult to reconcile this phenomenon with any kind of acknowledged atmospherical phenomenon. Even before the advent of UFOs or UAPs, sightings of otherworldly or unexplainable objects in the sky have been reported. So I'm going to be honest, a lot of this went sideways and I went into a lot of rabbit holes. There's a map of different sightings and pictures of tons of them. As far as actual estimated count of worldwide UFO sightings, other than the U.S. numbers I just spoke about, I couldn't find anything definitive. I know um, the British had a, had a, Italy had a program. Italy a ton. Yeah, Italy. Russia's got tons. Got tons. Yeah. At this point, we can... Uh, Talk a little more about some of the UFO sightings if you want to, because we're getting ready to shift into something else. Sure. Is that what you want to do? I'm trying to think of, I, I, I mean, as far as like alien or UFO crashes, I'm, I'm not, I'm not certain that I know of a whole lot of them, except for like Roswell is one. And That's I know how they want it to be, Barry. They, they keep don't the want crashes you to know. down. Um, okay. So there was that Pavlov's Pass or something like that, where in Russia they found these hikers eventually, where all their tongues and eyes were stuck, cut out of their heads. Real? Um, Whoa. Yeah. This yeah. math makes a lot of sense. Oh, okay. Why Why is that? Because not one in South Carolina. Exactly. <laughs> well, these are crashes, correct? Yeah, these yeah. are reported. Yeah, no, no alien. No, these are sightings. So oh, these are just You sightings. can actually hover over them and it'll turn, tell you more. You can click on it and it'll tell you. And this is, I was like, no, no, I can't go into every UFO sighting right. that ever, ever happened. Oh, no, we will just pick the states we like. Well, you I see? saw There's... my first UFO at, at Myrtle Beach and uh, it was I was like, okay, that's a that's a thing. What did you see? So, like, I'm on the – it was Gabrielle and her parents and her family were staying in this hotel room, and I was just out on the balcony, and I literally look up and see, like, uh, it was, the bottom of it was just dark, almost like a shadow going through the air really high, but around it was a dim light, and as it moved through, it was just hovering. But it was – you could see it go through the cloud, come out of the cloud, and I'm talking, like, it wasn't so high up, but it wasn't a balloon or anything because then it just went dark and gone. It was, it was like, I think it was on like dim mode or something because it, there's nothing I've seen Starlink. And at first I was like, holy crap, aliens. And then I was like, hold on, that looks like Starlink. So mm. like, I couldn't explain what this was okay. at all. Yeah. I, I, I've never, I have never actually, I can't claim to have ever actually seen one. Yeah. That's the only time I've seen one. It's so funny that it's a sighting at area 51. Well, yeah. <laughs> because you sit on S4. Can't nobody get in there? Who's seen that? Yeah, but no, no. So people will sit yeah. like on like adjacent to it with cameras and whatnot, and they say they, they see things they see things fly over all the time. That's how Bob mm-hmm. Lazar got caught. Oh. Because he was taking his buddies out there. He's like, I'm telling you there's alien craft. 
And then eventually they got really loosey-goosey and even bought an RV one time. Uh, let's see. Fargo, North Dakota. So I, I can tell a story from a friend of mine who who worked for uh, the Air Force for years. Uh, he was in the Air Force from like 58 to 69 or 70. So he worked uh, a radar station in, in North Dakota. And uh, there, and there were multiple radar stations all across the the from the Pacific Northwest all the way across the Maine, and and they're all in communication with each other. And he told this story about one night uh, they watched something come out of Canada into Minnesota, and and basically it crossed the United States in about a minute and a half. And and, and radar radar all the entire way across they watched it they scrambled jets to go after it they couldn't keep up with it like they 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 had jets that took off somewhere near the uh the the others between montana and idaho uh they scrambled jets out of an air base in montana that intercepted it as it flew past them like and and the pilots were on the radio the the radio is, i don't the audio is probably yeah. Anyway, but but that was that he told that story, and he, he was he was working the radar in North Dakota, in Fargo, North Dakota, and that was. That Could you was imagine being woken up out of your sleep as a soldier and being like, "Hey, something's flying over us. Go get it!" And you like, as soon as you get into your thing, you're in the air. That thing just like. <laughs> but when they just when he, when they talked about it, and when they did briefing, you know, when they had to do their briefing report afterwards, like it was it was labeled as something Russian. It was it Not had really. to been something Russian. This had to be either some sort of supersonic jet or a supersonic missile. Okay. You can see on there, they've got some things that are just abductions. You've got some things where it's Air Force jet chases UFO, and then it vanishes. That's down in... Uh, 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 near the, north of Michigan. Where, what, what did they say in Florida? What happened in Florida? I need to... You want to see what happened yeah. in Florida. So that's the, the Everglades. Everglades. So mm. it says the Sinister Saucer. Scoutmaster Sonny somebody or another was driving some Boy Scouts near West Palm Beach when dot, dot, dot. So... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, was driving some Boy Scouts near West Palm Beach when they saw a bright light flash over the Palmetto Grove. He stopped to investigate and uh, later. and later emerged terrified with burns on his arms and a tail of a 30-foot diameter saucer that had enveloped him in a red mist. Grass in the grove was singed and its roots charred. All right, so I don't think we can talk about UFOs without talking about who might be flying them. <laughs> So are you ready to talk about aliens? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Well, you're going to have to wait. We're taking a brief break. <laughs> All right. We'll take a break. Do aliens exist? That's a really interesting question and one that we have been trying to understand and explore and, and figure out for a really long time. We have not yet discovered life on any other planet. We haven't seen any scientifically supported evidence for extraterrestrial life. But if we think about life on this planet beyond the big things, the elephants, the whales, redwoods, and focus on the tiny things, nearly everywhere on Earth that we've looked, we found microbial life. And our definition of habitable continues to expand. Off the Earth, we've only begun to look. NASA has sent five rovers and four landers to the surface of Mars. And in addition to that, our orbiters have been outfitted with some amazing cameras to take pictures of the whole surface of the planet. And we've only explored a tiny fraction of Mars. 
And that's only one of the promising bodies to look for life in our solar system. There are icy moons in the outer solar system like Enceladus and Europa that look like they may have subsurface oceans that could be habitable. And then that's just what's in our solar system. The more exoplanets we find around other stars, the more we learn about how many different environments could exist for life. So we can't yet say for sure whether or not aliens exist. But to quote Carl Sagan, the universe is a pretty big place. If it's just us, it seems like an awful waste of space. So we will keep looking. And we're back and ready to talk about aliens. Again, we're going to start broad and then go down some rabbit holes. So broadly, what is an alien? Not from here. Not terrestrial. So alien is not of Earth when you were talking about what we're talking about. Yeah, does does. Does alien is Unknown. A, does alien actually like stand for anything? Yeah, that's what I know ET is extraterrestrial. Like FBI. Alien just means strange to your norm. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. yeah so when sense. we go to Mars, we're the aliens. So who coined sure. the phrase alien? Couldn't tell you. Okay. But if we're going dictionary definition, an alien is either A, a person who is not of a particular group or place, B, a foreign born resident who has not been naturalized and is still a subject or citizen of a foreign country, or C, Coming from another world, extraterrestrial. Mm. This is the one we're going for. Break down our root words, extra, not of Earth, terrestrial Earth. That's right. (laughs) So based on what is likely not firsthand experience, I'm going to guess, how would you describe an alien? Appearance, features, mannerisms, etc.? Well, you have the you got the the triangle-shaped head with the big eyes and the, the, the lack of most as far as like a mouth or facial features. And then you got the tentacles. Yeah. I mean, aliens, like you can go with men in black definitions where they show like a myriad of different ones, but you have your grays. I like that word. Yeah. The grays. That's who I was describing. That's your big, big black eyes, little nostrils and mouth. Like a lot of people think those eventually, those are humans from the future whatever, but aliens can be just a stranger. You meet that, can be an alien. There's, there's no, there's nothing that says it has to be humanoid or anything like that. Like, who knows what they really look? It's just strange. But I think their interaction would be more strange than their appearance at times. I definitely think tentacles when I think aliens. So it's pretty evident that we think of a lot of different things when we think of aliens. Some people think of xenomorphs from the aliens movies. Some people talk about little green men. Some people describe gray humanoids with enlarged heads and huge eyes. Some people say. They look just like us. But since we're going down rabbit holes, let's talk a little more about where some of the specific descriptions come from. And I feel like it's a common alien stereotype, if you will, uh, little green men. Mm-hmm. So any thoughts on where that description comes from? That's like Martians, Mizzle, right? Mizzleplex or whatever. Uh, who's the one from Looney Mars Tunes? Attacks? Are you talking about the Looney Tunes or Flintstones? He had, they had like, oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, he was a fast talking New Yorker. I cannot. Though. Yeah, I cannot remember his name. I never think of aliens as little green men. Yeah, I don't. But uh, Marvin the Martian. Yeah, Marvin the Martian was one. So Mars Attacks. Yeah, Mars Attacks. Yeah, So as far as little green men go, again and again in my research, this one came up as to likely predating sci-fi stories going back to 12th century English legends. Uh, known as the Green Children of Woolpit, in which two children, a brother and a sister, mysteriously show up in town. They look normal in appearance, except that their skin is green. They also speak a different language. After several years and learning to speak English, the sister explains that she and her brother came from a land where the sun never shone and the light was like twilight. But as far as science fiction goes, the use of the term little green men dates back most often to the 1940s. 
Harold Lawler used the term in his story, Mayaya's Little Green Men, in Weird Tales in 1946. In 1955, Frederick Brown's popular science fiction novel, Martians Go Home, the aliens, from Mars in this instance, were small, green-skinned invaders who spent their time playing annoying and embarrassing tricks. References to Little Green Men can be seen on TV in the 1960s with the Flintstones, Great Gazoo. Great Gazoo. That's what it was. That, dum-dum, is where I have to draw the line. Mechanics I can inspire, but personality is something you have to be born with. And Star Trek's Tomorrow is Yesterday. All right, Colonel, the truth is I'm a little green man from Alpha Centauri, a beautiful place, you ought to see it. 1988 saw mention of Little Green Men and Doctor Who... More recently, Toy Story also brought us Little Green Men with their depiction the of aliens. Claw. <laughs> so folklorist and UFO researcher Chris Aubick has stated that the term Little Green Men was in popular use long before UFOs ever came onto the scene, but its transition from the world of folklore to ufology was yeah. seamless. The earliest example that Aubick was able to find of a green alien was in a short story published in the Atlanta Constitution in 1899 called Green Boy from Hera. The author describes the boy as being funny-looking, with skin that was as green as a maple leaf in midsummer, wearing a silken cloak the color of old gold. When the story's protagonist asks where he's from, the boy tells her he's from Hera. And when she asks where Hera is, the boy points to the sky. The protagonist assumes that Hera is a star. And while Little Green Men is a popular depiction of aliens in literature and entertainment, It's typically the gray aliens, also referred to as Zeta Reticulans, who are the frequent subjects of close encounters and alien abduction claims. So what do you know about gray aliens? I know where Zeta Reticuli comes from. We'll get there. But uh, the gray aliens, they're the ones that people think, in general, they are humanoid, and their heads are so big is because they don't have to do anything else. It's all telepathic. It is all... They have big eyes to see what they need to see, but they don't need to eat like they, well, that we eat. They don't need to smell like we smell. They don't need to do any of that, like they're futuristic human. But when it comes down to it, it's that they think they're futuristic human beings just because we've evolved to a point, and they're kind of just back here to study us, and that's why they would abduct, abduct us. Time traveling back in time to uh, traveling back in time from the future to to study humans in the past. So, like, you don't have to. If you're go, if you're able to come from Zeta Reticuli, the star system, to here, you you are going clo- close to the speed of light, beyond the speed of light when it comes to like warp and stuff. Time is nothing to you at that point. Sure. So the gray aliens are typically described as being human-like with smallish bodies. They're described as having gray, smooth skin and large, hairless heads and large black eyes. This image was popularized in 1961 in New Hampshire after the Barney and Betty Hill abduction claim. Betty Hill is also indirectly responsible for the Zeta Reticulans name. Zeta Reticuli is a binary star system in the southern constellation of Reticulum. It's located approximately 39.3 light years from Earth. Under hypnosis after her abduction claim, Betty drew a map that she claimed she was shown that displayed the alien's home system and nearby stars. In 1969, a schoolteacher by the name of Marjorie Fish attempted to create a model based on Betty's drawing and eventually determined that the stars marked as the alien's home were Zeta Reticuli. That's and that's the thing about that. I have goosebumps now because she has no reason to know that at all. Also, there's no reason to think you when you because they ran from this UFO that like was chasing their car. Yeah, yeah. And they both got hurt from it for one. And the car tested radioactive as well. The 
the fact that when she got abducted, I don't get why an alien would give her a tour of the ship. Like, that's kind of funny. But she mapped something that an astronomer later was able to go, that she's dead on. So among reports of alien encounters, greys make up about 50% in Australia, 73% in the United States, 48% in continental Europe, and 12% in the UK. A quick note here, it turns out that UFOs and alien abductions are primarily a phenomenon in English-speaking countries. So while researching greys, I also learned of a skeptic, Frederick V. Malmstrom, who in 2005 presented the idea that greys are actually residual memories of early childhood development. Think about what you're told about how infants perceive the world. Malmstrom's supposition is that the murky skin color, the enlarged eyes, no additional discernible features may actually be vague memories of our mother's faces as perceived through the senses of an infant. So largely, skeptics believe that pop culture is the reason why the specific image of greys lives on. A case of life imitates art, imitates life. Uh, Like with much of the conversation we've already had today, most of the sightings and stories are of a modern era. But there's potentially some earlier entertainment that may have given life to these images. In 1891, a novel called Maida, A Tale of the Future, was published by Kenneth Fallingsby, in which the narrator encountered small, gray-skinned aliens with balloon-shaped heads. In 1893, H.G. Wells gave his futuristic human description in The Man of the Year Million, describing humans as having no mouths, noses, or hair with large heads. He also described a similar successor species to humans in The Time Machine in 1895. Yeah. The Time Machine was terrifying. (laughs) From there, you've got Mars Attacks, Men in Black, Third Rock from the Sun, Independence Day, Fire in the Sky, Contact, the Aliens movies, and even Indiana Jones. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, can we just forget? <laughs> can we just forget the crystal skull? So, what are some of the other portrayals of aliens in pop culture? Oh, I mean, uh, you said them all. Uh, K-Pax was a great movie. Yeah, that was a good movie. Um, Contact. Uh, Contact. What's the John Travolta movie? Oh, uh, that was. Are you talking about the one where? Um, are you talking about phenomenon. Phenomenon. Yeah. Yeah, but he wasn't an alien. A brain tumor. That was part of it. Oh, that yeah. That the tumor was put into. Yeah, because he saw, saw a UFO light, and yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, the box was inexplicably an alien movie. Yeah. Was it really? Mm-hmm. Spoiler. I didn't. I didn't. I, I didn't get that out of that. Signs. We kind of touched yeah, on signs, signs was... being one. Mm-hmm. There's tons. Paul. Yeah, Paul, Paul was fantastic. X Files. X. I mean, X Files. What? There's nothing. Outer Limits. Of course, they did that as well. They're everywhere. I mean, Star Wars, Star Trek, all yeah. of them. At, yeah. Aliens are so much more interesting than us. And like the, <laughs> that is the theme of it. Sci-fi channel, basically. Yeah, yeah history like, so channel. Most probably... of the history channel. Okay, so now we're going to move to alien abduction. But I'm going to preface this section with the fact that, as far as I can tell, there is little to no physical evidence of alien abduction seemingly out there. But regardless of that, <laughs> we're diving down this hole. So, what is alien abduction? Taking a taking a against your will. That's a close encounter of the fourth kind. Uh, let's see. So first kind is you spot something in the sky that leaves no evidence. Second is a UFO leaves some physical trace burns on the that's ground. What, that's what yeah, that's what missing. it was. And then, uh, you make contact with the UFO. You see, uh, some alien pilot aboard. And then fourth is the abduction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is pretty straightforward. Alien abduction refers to the phenomenon of people reporting being kidnapped and subjected to physical and or psychological experimentation by an alien. Most scientists and mental health professionals attribute these claims from abductees to factors such as suggestibility, false memories, deception, straight up lies, psychopathology, brain chemistry, or most often, 
sleep paralysis, which often comes with auditory and visual hallucinations while also experiencing the inability to move. So despite this, millions of people, usually American, claim that they've been abducted. There are support groups throughout the United States where people come together to share their own abduction stories. There are two landmark cases for alien abduction, the Hills, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, and a Brazilian named Antonio Vilas Boas in the 1950s. Basically, Boas was a young farmer. He was in his 20s, and he was working his fields at night in October of 57 because it was just too hot during the day. He claims he saw a red star in the sky that approached where he was, increasing in size until he recognized it as a roughly circular or egg-shaped aerial craft with a red light and a rotating cupola on top. The craft descended to the field, extending three legs as it did. This concerned Boas, and he did what I imagine most people might do in that situation. He took off. First on his tractor, but that died only a short distance away, so he began to run when a humanoid, roughly five feet tall, wearing gray overalls and a helmet, grabbed him and dragged him back to the spacecraft. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of what he says happened, as this podcast is suitable for all ages, but if anyone is interested, let me know, and I'll send you some information on it. So the other landmark case was the Hills. I mentioned these folks earlier when I spoke of the gray aliens in Zeta Reticuli. According to the Hills, they were driving back from a nice Canadian vacation in September of 1961. It was nighttime, and Betty believed she saw a falling star until she saw it move upward. The glowing object in the night sky moved erratically and grew bigger and brighter. So Betty asked Barney to pull over so she could look at it through binoculars and also to walk their dog. Eventually, the object in the sky drew so near that Barney went to get a better look with the binoculars in one hand and his pistol in the other. Uh, He claims to have seen 8 to 11 humanoid figures who were looking out the window of the spacecraft. He claims that one of the humanoids communicated with him telepathically to stay where you are and keep looking. The couple eventually arrived home around dawn, but insisted that things were amiss. Their watches stopped and would never tell time again. The strap from the binoculars was torn, though Mm. neither recalls it tearing. The toes of his dress shoes were scraped. Her dress was torn and had a pinkish powder on it. The powder blew away when she hung the dress out on the clothesline, but five laboratories have conducted chemical and forensic analysis on the dress in the years since the reported abduction without remark. And did you see anything different with that? No, but it was on the car, too. And apparently the psychologist... What, the pink pink uh, dust? Yeah, it was on the car, too. And they pulled... There was radioactive material. Like, the the car itself, the paint was no good after that. And I believe they got burned. Like, it was hot. Because they they drove away from it for a long time. Uh, But, yeah, like... They had every encounter. <laughs> saw it. There's traces. They, the third one was seeing them. They so they saw the craft. Had traces of having the craft in their vicinity. And they interacted. They saw them. Then they interacted. But a lot of scientists and psychologists. Um, so even when she went under hypnosis, it was shortly after uh, pop culture videos have come out. Mm-hmm. Um, she and was so on they, TV shows too. And so they they really, a lot of this is attributed to her being false memories. Like, Correct. Mm-hmm them being in her head and her mm-hmm. recalling them as her own memories. Um, I actually don't have anything else on the hills unless you have Well, the accuracy of some of the things that were... There's so many things, like, especially her with the map part. That's that's kind of like, all right, well, how do you just guess that? I don't think you do. Right. Um, I don't know. So, there have been television episodes about this case, books written, Carl Sagan has discussed it in Cosmos... Um, aspects of their story were used in episodes of The X-Files, Dark Skies, and even American Horror Story. Yep. So part of the reason these two cases are considered to be the landmark cases is because they establish basically canon for alien abductions moving forward. 
Essentially, most abduction stories follow a very similar script, even though some of the details are changed. So have you heard of any compelling stories of alien abduction that think make you think maybe it's true? Yeah, there was a guy, um, I cannot remember the state, but he was a logger. Yeah, and fire in the sky. Yeah. So yeah, it was I have not seen the movie, but he they were out there logging and they all saw the light and this guy was like, Well, I'm gonna go to it. Yeah. Like that's what I'm gonna do. And he was abducted and he was gone for a very long time. It was, it was about it was four or five days, yeah. Yeah, he was gone for a very long time and eventually he was dumped on the side of the road. And they actually like really did hurt him. Well, and, and not only that, but like the men that he was in the truck with, because there were five or six oh, other yeah. other men in the truck that saw him go into a field that, that uh, uh, in, in in the middle of a forest. He gets out of the truck, goes into the middle of the field, and a beam of light hits him and then apparently begins to to pull him up into the air and like lifts him up into the air. And at that point they took off. And, yeah. and, and from that point, like they, they, as soon as they got to a town where they could, they were scared to get out to, of the truck. Yeah. But as soon as they got to town, they called the police yeah. and like the police did a search for three days mm-hmm. in the, in the yeah. area they were looking for. Could not find him. Not, not anywhere. And then all of a sudden he just turns up on, See, on the side of the road. Alien wow. abductions and UFO sightings tend to be met with some skepticism, especially from the scientific community. But certainly, it's hard to be a scientist and think that the possibility of life on other planets isn't possible. Well-known astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. My boy. That's Zach's boy. Shared his thoughts on aliens in an interview with CNN. Do you believe that there is life out there somewhere? I would say that if there weren't life, it would be astonishing. If there were, if, given how common our ingredients are and how quickly life took place here and how many planets we know are orbiting host stars. And it would be astonishing if that were the case. And what about aliens and what about UFOs? Well, to me, any life is alien. You mean aliens like with antennas and ray guns? Something more than a a cell. Okay. (laughs) Something (laughs) that could land here in a spaceship? Um, It could be out there. There's no evidence that would convince an authentic skeptic that we've been visited. Uh, and I can tell you this, these fuzzy monochromatic tic-tacs that show up right. on the Navy-restricted airspace in our own atmosphere, by the way, you've seen the high-resolution images from a telescope we parked a million miles from Earth called the James Webb Space Telescope, looking at the edge of the universe. And the best you have of visiting aliens in our own atmosphere is a fuzzy tic-tac? You got to do better than that. It's a FLIR cam. It's an astrophysicist. It's a FLIR cam. Yeah, I think it was, I think in that situation, I think that it was the product of the circumstance, which was the pilots can't fly planes while trying to take pictures, especially if they're engaged in something. And that camera has to be cheap enough to put on every aircraft. Exactly. And it's designed to recognize things you're known to recognize. Hey, hey. These are million-dollar aircrafts. You don't think they got to put that in the budget? Go buy one camera. <laughs> telling you. It's, that's, and Neil's fair in that assessment. So I also have a short video from the Planetary Society, which I just learned is a... Yeah, Bill Nye's the president of it. It also includes audio clips from Frank Drake and Carl Sagan discussing intelligent life in the universe. Love so Carl we're going to play Sagan. that one. I take the solar system, which we know has happened, and the life on Earth as typical. And as far as we know, it is typical. We know of nothing, no freakish event that was required for us with our motorcycles and our videotape recorders to exist. We've hardly searched all the various frequencies, the forms of signal, the places in the sky from which signals might come. 
the fact that we so far have no evidence of extraterrestrial life is not at all discouraging. We shouldn't have found it yet. We have hardly begun. There is some chance that in the next few decades we will get a signal from some spectacularly distant, spectacularly exotic civilization, and everything on Earth will, as a consequence, change. That is possible. I think even if there's a plausible argument for a few, we ought to keep looking. I even go further than that. If there's a plausible argument that there isn't anybody out there bearing in mind that we can be wrong, we ought to keep looking because the question is of the most supreme importance. It calibrates our place in the universe. It tells us who we are. Well, the thing is, too, so Carl Sagan, he's he's one of the people who started uh, the Planetary Society. Bill, Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson both learned from Carl Sagan. Uh, but he's right. He At the beginning, he says, we're only just now understanding the mediums in which life is speaking to us. That's dimensions. You can talk about dimensions. That's a big factor. You think they are flying like this. You're only seeing glimpses of them clipping in and out of dimensions that we know. We know of three. Correct. They may know of ten. So I agree. It's hard to think that there isn't the possibility of life on other planets. It's foolish to think that. Um, and it may be. It may not be little green men or gray humanoids, but it's... It's hard to think that there's nothing. So there we have it, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me as we went down so many rabbit holes this week. I hope you enjoyed learning a little more. And uh, thank you to the All About Nothing guys, Trent, Zach, and Barrett. Hey. For, <laughs> for making Welcome to Wonderland's first year anniversary episode such a memorable one. Well, and me, we didn't go down a rabbit hole today. We went down a wormhole. Until next time, be safe, be kind, and stay curious. The Welcome to Wonderland podcast is copyrighted by Ami Bland and is part of the Barrett Gruber Entertainment Division. This podcast is recorded at the podcast studio at GOT Sound Studios in Lexington, South Carolina. Any thoughts or opinions expressed as part of this production are those of the host, unless otherwise noted. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please follow, like, and share this podcast. Find Welcome to Wonderland on Facebook at Welcome to Wonderland the podcast and on Twitter, Wonderland underscore pod. To submit corrections, additional information, or requests for episodes, please email the host at welcome to Wonderland the pod at gmail.com. Should we take a break first? Well, no. Okay. <laughs> Said no editing. See, that's where the dun 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 go. Yeah. <laughs> and quickly, Zach was put in his place, <laughs> as if through a cloud. Zach well, was put in his place by the corrector. Because when we get to the end here, I have a line that says, "So I don't think we can talk about UFOs without talking about who might be flying them." So are you ready to talk about aliens? And then you guys will say, "Yes, of course I'm ready." And then I'll say, "Too bad, we're going to break." Okay. <laughs> That's all I needed today. So UFOs are pre-break. Spoiler aliens alert. are post-break. <laughs> okay, fair, fair, I wish I would have knew that for the first part of the episode. <laughs> Hello, podcast listener. My name is Barrett, and along with a couple friends, Zach and Trent, I host the All About Nothing podcast. 
a weekly discussion about news, entertainment, politics, sports, and more. We give our honest opinions about the information that's most affecting the world, sometimes serious, sometimes funny, but never not interesting. It's the All About Nothing podcast with Zach King, Trent Clark, and Barrett Gruber. Get it wherever you listen to podcasts or visit theallaboutnothing.com for links. The All About Nothing podcast. It's likely to be the best part of your week. Welcome to Wonderland with a me is a product of Bear Gruber Entertainment and Media.